Welcome to the Nourish, Eat, Repeat podcast, helping people who want to improve their health and change their mindset around food so they can live the life they were designed and called for. I am your host, Adrian Delgado, and in this podcast, I'll give you step-by-step action plans to reach your health goals, as well as my favorite recipes I know you and your family will enjoy. Let's get started. To another episode of Nourish, Eat, Repeat. Guys, you are in for a special treat today because we have a very special guest. Uh, Lana Walsh is joining us today. Lana, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Of course. And Lana is a sleep coach. And so we all know how um, nutrition is impacted by many things. Uh, But one thing that we haven't talked about yet is sleep and how that impacts our our health, uh, our food choices, um, how we feel during our day. It's such an integral part of health. And I don't think it's discussed enough or given enough credit. So um, I am going to let Lana, take it away, and she is going to share with us all her nuggets of wisdom, and we're going to learn a lot. I've got my notebook ready, so I'm taking notes. Um, So I'll let you introduce yourself, and then you can talk a little bit more. Great. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and speaking to your audience about sleep. I completely agree with you. I don't think there's near enough um, conversations going on about how sleep works and how important it is to your daily life. So a little bit about me, Um, I suffered from insomnia for over 30 years. Uh, When I was a teenager, I was probably like your typical teenager, I was always grumpy and irritable, and I didn't want to get up to go to school, and I was sleeping in on the weekends and all of those things. But I tossed and turned so much at night, my pajamas would get just wrapped around me so tight I could barely move. I'd have to get out of bed and rearrange them. Well, it was during this time that I read an article in Teen Magazine about restless leg syndrome, and it's a sleep disorder. And what it does is it's an uncontrollable urge to move your legs that gets worse with fatigue. So at night, my legs would just be swinging back and forth across the bed, and I'd be tossing and turning. I'd have to literally get out of bed and do exercises to try and calm my legs down enough so I could go back to sleep. But it took over a decade for that to get diagnosed, and in the meantime, I developed insomnia and that affected me my entire life. I had troubles getting to work on time. I would nod off at the afternoons during meetings or just sitting at my desk working. I actually tell a story to my clients about nodding off while I'm meeting with the premier of Alberta as a a, um, college student. So, you know, it's just, it really affected my life. And I thought I tried everything. I did all the sleep hygiene hacks that they tell you about a cool, dark room, proper bed, you know, turning off your devices, all of those things, and nothing really seemed to help. Uh, Until I started to um, reduce my stress and anxiety. That was the the first thing I did. I I found the simple technique to reduce stress and anxiety. And after a few weeks of, of using that, I started to sleep better to the point where I stopped taking my sleeping pills. And that led me on a journey to really doing some actual research into sleep. And I stumbled across this program at Harvard University called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. And it was developed in the 90s, and it is now considered the gold standard in treating insomnia and sleeping disorders. So I decided I needed to become trained in it because once I 
started implementing those strategies on top of my reducing stress and anxiety, I would say I cured my insomnia. I rarely have a night where I can't sleep through the night. And even when I do, because of what I know about my sleep now, I don't feel as bad about it. I don't have the stress and anxiety in the morning after waking up if I do have a night where I can't sleep very well. So I became trained as a coach and I developed a six week program. I have a half day program. Uh, I'm just finishing writing an ebook on four, five steps to getting better rest. And I just want to share as much information as I can with people because it is so misunderstood. And there's so much conflicting information available. So it's really hard to know what to do. So that's kind of my mission, help as many people understand as they can, as I can. Yeah, and it's, a, like you said, a much needed mission. I know part of our, like if you become a client at Body Metrics, one of the intake questions is, is how much sleep do you get? Do you have any trouble falling asleep, staying asleep? And it is very rare that I find somebody who sleeps great. Like this is impacting, and I mean, I only have my little area of the world that I'm impacting, you know, in, in Limerick, Pennsylvania, but, you know, if I were to extrapolate that data, I mean, this is affecting millions of people, right? Um, yeah. Yes. 60% of people will suffer from insomnia at some point in their life. Usually through a stressful life event, they'll have a bit of insomnia, but chronic insomnia affects one in five people. That's oh, a lot of people. One in five is a lot. Yeah. yeah. And uh, just how much it impacts your that entire day. You know, so obviously we need to do some work with this and we need more education. So Lana, explain to us, I think you said um, when we talked earlier, you have an eight hour, the eight hour sleep myth. Can you explain to us what that means and how that impacts our quality of sleep? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, um, most people have heard this, you need a minimum of eight hours of sleep. And if you don't get it, then that lost sleep accumulates into a sleep debt, right? That's what most people have been told. So I, in fact, I read an article from 2015 that said, if you were only getting six hours of sleep a night for a week, you would accumulate a 14 hour sleep debt that you would have to make up on the weekends and the following week. Well, let's just think about what that means. That means for the next seven days, you would have to sleep at least 10 hours. So that's the eight hours that you have to have plus the two hours that you missed to make up a 14 hour sleep debt. So first of all, can we all just agree that that just sounds ridiculous? Nobody could sleep 10 hours a night for an entire week. The other thing is the research does not support the eight hour minimum sleep cycle. There is uh, a ton of research, meta-analysis of data. Uh, there's, I wish I had, uh, could put up a picture for you, but there was a meta-analysis of over 35 different sleep studies involving millions of people that showed seven hours of sleep was associated with the least risk of mortality. And that when you got to eight hours and above, that risk rose quite steeply. Whereas less than seven hours of sleep, that risk only rose um, at a very minor uh, rise. And in fact, it shows that eight hours of sleep is associated with the same risk of mortality as getting four to five hours of sleep. So that leads researchers to believe that our sleep is not negatively affected by get or our health is not negatively affected by getting too little sleep, 
but by getting too much sleep. And of course, there's other studies that, that follow the same pattern. Cognitive behavioral studies or cognitive, um, not behavior, uh, abilities, cognitive abilities peak at seven hours. Uh, the risk of developing a cognitive disorder like Alzheimer's or dementia, that's best amount of sleep is seven hours. Uh, even weight gain, seven hours of sleep is associated with the least risk of weight gain. So the, the real sleep goal that people should be going for, oh, the one other thing I should tell you is our sleep changes as we age. So we know newborns, they sleep a lot. They sleep 16, 18 hours, right? They sleep all the time. And our school-age kids, we put them to bed seven, eight o'clock so they get enough sleep, right? Teenagers, they need about eight hours of sleep, but they're doing really bad things that keep them from getting enough rest, which is why they're chronically tired. But by the time we're in our middle age, 30s and 40s, we're down to seven. And when we're seniors in our 70s, it drops to six and a half hours. So our real sleep goal should be six to eight hours of sleep. And to recognize that just like we have different heights and weights, we also have different requirements for sleep. Some people can do really well even on five and a half hours of sleep. Some people struggle even at eight hours of sleep. So really it comes down to, if you know that six to eight hours is okay, then it will help you feel better about your sleep when you're not getting that eight hours you think you need. Even when you wake up in the middle of the night, you can remind yourself, okay, I'm okay I, if I get one at less hour of sleep tonight because six hours is okay for me, right? So that's part of this whole, the sleep myth is just understanding that getting less sleep is not going to affect your health. It's not gonna affect you weight-wise. It's not going to affect you, um, your cognitive um, abilities. It's not gonna affect your performance. So if you can know that, you can be less stressed about the sleep you're getting. Okay, okay. So do you think that stress and anxiety, do you think that is the number one factor affecting our sleep or are there other factors that we're not recognizing? Well, stress and anxiety is the number one reason people do have trouble sleeping and even good sleepers will have trouble sleeping on days that they have, um, that have a lot of stress in them. Uh, and most people, if you talk to them that have trouble going to sleep or staying asleep, they will tell you that it's because their mind is racing or there's something going on in their life that is causing problems for them. So yes, it's definitely the number one reason. Of course, there are other reasons why you might have trouble sleeping. Like if you are drinking too much caffeine, if you um, try to use alcohol to induce sleep, that um, causes actually lighter rest because it decreases deep sleep. Um, if you are spending too much time in bed is a big thing. What I coach my clients on, we do sleep restriction to get your schedule back on track. If you're in bed, like I used to be nine to 10 hours, you're not giving your body enough time to be awake and build up a neurotransmitter called adenosine which is the sleep neurotransmitter. And if you don't have that built up enough, you don't have enough pressure or drive to sleep and sleep well. So there's a number of things that we do that affect our sleep. But the biggest reason why people have insomnia is stress and anxiety. And it's usually the reason why people develop insomnia. So if you have a stressful life event, a death in your family, a financial crisis, a health crisis, a divorce, those are natural times to have insomnia. And you shouldn't be worried if you're having trouble sleeping during those kinds of events. But those events usually precipitate chronic insomnia. 
And it's because you lay awake in bed after, night after night and you start to get anxious about not sleeping. And then you start to anticipate not sleeping, which makes you afraid of going to bed because you're afraid you're not going to sleep. So that's the, usually what begins somebody's problems with sleep. So and then what? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry I was going to say, even me, like, so my um, sleep disorder started my insomnia. But even when I got my sleep disorder diagnosed and I started treating it, I was having trouble sleeping because I, I had learned, my, my subconscious learned that my bed was a place where I was awake. So mm. that's what happens is over time, you get this, just like Pavlov's dog learned to salivate at the sound of the bell. When you have chronic insomnia, you have learned that your bed is a place to be awake and to think and, and even be active. Wow. So that makes so much sense when you explain it that way. So then what do we do? <laughs> you take my program. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, I can imagine all that is built up and knowing is half of it, right? Awareness is always the first step, but then the second right. piece is now, now what do now, I do? Now, what do I do? Okay. Well, my what I tell all of my clients, you first of all, you need to start tracking what's going on with your sleep. Studies show that poor sleepers um, misperceive how much sleep they're actually getting. So they overestimate how long it takes them to go to sleep by about 30 minutes. And they underestimate how long they're sleeping by about an hour. So in general, on average, most poor sleepers are underestimating the amount of sleep they're getting by about an hour. So the first step is to track your sleep. What time are you going to bed? What time are you turning out the lights? What time are you waking up? What time are you getting up? Um, how much time are you awake during the night? Do that for a week and just see what's actually going on with your sleep. So I have a question with that. Sure. Um, so do you think the, like the Fitbits and the activity trackers are helpful? or more harmful in this case? Well, they actually <laughs> underestimate how much sleep you're getting because okay. they, yeah, because they can only, it can only track based on your heart rate. So for example, it's based on your heart rate. So if you're stressed and anxious, that increases your heart rate. So studies show that cortisol, that's the stress hormone that gets released into your body when you're under stress, um, stays elevated through the night. So after a stressful day, it stays elevated through the night. So your heart rate is automatically higher because cortisol's job is to prepare you for fight or flight. So that means increasing your heart rate, increasing your blood pressure, increasing muscle tension. So your Fitbit can't accurately predict what stage of sleep you're in because it's not measuring your brain waves, which is how researchers study how much sleep you're getting. So if, if I were say, if you were to look at your Fitbit and I would just say, take it with a grain of salt, you're better off to measure it yourself. Ask yourself in the morning, how good do I feel like I slept last night? Yeah, so that's yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think when I talk to people about sleep, they're always like, well, my Fitbit told me that I only slept six hours last night. And, you know, yes, it's a form of data and we all love data. But at the same time, if it's not accurate data, then it's not helpful. So that makes a lot of sense, measuring brain waves, not heart rate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. 
Okay, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Keep no, going. that's okay. No, I forget what else we were. I forget what we were talking about. Um, we first of all, you said awareness. We have to track oh, yes. our sleep and wake. That's the first right. step. Right. Once you do that, and you get a better understanding of what's going on with your sleep, um, at the same time, you should be doing what you can to reduce your sleep. So meditation, exercise, yoga. Um, you know, if you know EFT tapping or um, cognitive behavioral therapy, like any of those things that you use for stress relief, um, start using it every day. Start using it on those things that are causing you stress each day, or even in the middle of the night when you wake up, what are you thinking about? Start um, working on reducing those stressors. So those, those two will get you a long way. But then the next thing to do is now that you understand how much sleep you actually need, you need to change your mindset about your sleep. So if you're telling yourself first thing in the morning after a bad night of sleep that you're gonna have a useless day because you slept so poorly, now you know that getting six hours of sleep is okay. It's, it's okay for um, your cognitive abilities. Uh, you can even remind yourself you've done it before, you've had bad nights of sleep before and you've got through the day. You can tell yourself, I'm probably getting more sleep than I think because my perception of my sleep might not be accurate. So knowing the truth and changing your mindset, stop telling yourself you're a bad sleeper or you had a bad night. Start being more positive about it. It's okay. I can get through the day. Um, I'll, I'll be okay. It doesn't affect my health. It's not going to affect my weight. It's not going to affect this. So it's going to be okay. It's just one day. I can get through it. So having a more positive attitude will, will change um, how you feel during the day as well. So most people, when they have a bad night's sleep, the biggest effect that it has on them is they have a bad mood. So they have, they're irritable, they're cranky. My clients, one of my clients told me they were listless. They're unmotivated. Those are some of the words that my clients use when they talk about nights of insomnia. So if you can reduce your stress, first of all, that will also help with your mood. But if you also are telling yourself that you've gotten enough sleep, that you can be productive, you can do all these things, then it will prevent you from also having a bad mood that day. And it'll help you relax so you can sleep. Yeah, well, you mentioned the telling yourself. But it, uh, I, the immediate thought that I thought of was when we we tell ourselves uh, we're a picky eater, right? If we tell ourselves a picky eater, then we're not going to try new foods because picky eaters don't try new foods and we only eat three foods. So, so much of this is all in our heads and what we're telling ourselves. And that's really what is setting us up for the next night mm -hmm. of, of another sleepless night is basically what you're, you're saying, right? If I'm- Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find so, that um, notebooks are helpful? I know some people will say they keep a notebook at their bed to give their thoughts somewhere to go. Is that actually truth or is that a myth? No, that's, that's actually a really good strategy, especially if you, have, um, if you have an event, maybe you're organizing an event where there's lots of tiny little details, or uh, if you're building a business or you have a lot of work to do, where that to-do list just goes over and over and over in your mind. That is such a good idea to like, before you go to bed, write down everything that you can think of. If you wake up in the middle of the night and your mind's racing, yes, get up, 
and write it, write some stuff down, get it off your brain so you can stop. So your brain can stop thinking about it, it knows you're going to remember that's what happens is you, you don't think you're going to remember. So you repeat it over and over and over again, so you can remember it. So if you can write it down. So here's where some people get um, caught up when it comes to that they're afraid to turn on the light because of melatonin. Well, that is a myth. Uh, you need to have 5000 lux of light. So a lux is the light of one candle. So you need to have 5000 lux of light hit your eyes in order for it to affect melatonin. So the average indoor lighting is between 500 and 2000 lux. So and to get another example, a sunrise in the summer is about 10,000 lux. And a sun, sunny summer day is about 100,000 lux. So the one thing that you cannot do in the middle of the night is turn on your devices. A blue light has the same effect as sunlight on your eyes and melatonin production. So that is like turning off your devices, really good idea. And make sure you don't turn them on in the middle of the night if you wake up. But yeah, turn on your light, write stuff down, turn the light off or read. Um, if you have trouble sleeping, you should do something relaxing until you're ready to go to sleep. So, yeah. Now, I know, uh, like, just for, again, this is all from what I hear my clients say, uh, a lot of them will go downstairs and put the TV on, and then they'll end up falling asleep to the TV. Is that training your brain to fall asleep mm -hmm. to TV and not being able to do it on your own? It's, that would be the same thing as the blue light, I would believe, right? Yeah, well, the, the TV is a bit better because it's further away. Okay. So it's it's not as bad. But I would the what I would suggest is don't let yourself fall asleep on the couch. If that's yes. something that happens regularly, then um, you need to turn the TV off before you fall asleep. So give yourself a time limit, like 20 minutes, watch TV, then go to bed and see if you can go to sleep. That's and that's the actual strategy that's part of my program is if it takes you more than 30 minutes to go to sleep or go back to sleep, then do something relaxing for 20 to 30 minutes or until you feel sleepy. Okay. So, okay. yeah, that, and that's because if you're doing that, if you're falling asleep regularly on the couch, then yes, you're right. You're going to start to continue to associate the couch with the place where you sleep and not the bed. So you need to make sure you're shutting that down before you fall asleep and, and trying to go to sleep in bed. Yeah, no, that's definitely helpful information. Are there any other myths that we have bought into that we need to actually talk about? <laughs> um, I don't know so much about myths as misinformation. Okay. Um, so one of the things that a lot of people do when they have trouble sleeping is they um, stay in bed longer. They're like, if I just stay in bed a little bit longer and get a little bit more sleep, I'm gonna feel better, right? So, you know, that was what I was doing nine, 10 hours I was in bed. That actually contributes to your insomnia because you're screwing up your circadian rhythm. So our circadian rhythm, um, is based on our body temperature fluctuations. So our body temperature actually fluctuates about two degrees Fahrenheit or one degree Celsius throughout a 24 hour period. 
And how your circadian rhythm works, you get up in the morning, you start to get active, the sunlight hits your eyes, melatonin production stops, and your body temperature starts to rise. And it peaks, you know, late afternoon, early evening. And then the sun goes down, we get less active, our body temperature starts to drop, and about two hours before bedtime, our melatonin production begins. And then we go to sleep. And we hit our lowest body temperature somewhere in the middle of the night, three or four. So when we stay in bed too long, like we sleep in, for example, when we sleep in, what we're doing is we're delaying that cycle. So then when nighttime comes around, we can't, we're not ready for bed because our body temperature is too high. And we haven't had that full day of adenosine buildup to get us to go to sleep at night. And this is what happens on the weekends, right? You, if, you, if you're in bed 10 o'clock, and up at six during the week. And then Friday comes along, you're like, I don't want to go to bed at 10. I'm, I'm staying up till midnight. I'll just sleep in tomorrow. You get up at eight. Well, then Saturday night comes along and you're like, oh, I'm not really right. I don't want to go to bed at 10. I want to go to bed at midnight. So you go to bed at midnight, you get up at eight. Sunday night comes along. You're like, oh, I have to go to bed early because Monday morning tomorrow, I got to get up early. So you try to go to bed at your regular time at 10 o'clock, but your body's not ready for that. You've, you've retrained yourself to be going to bed later. So what happens? You're laying in bed at 10 o'clock and you can't go to sleep and you start to toss and turn and then you start to get anxious because, oh my gosh, it's Monday morning. I got to get up at six. Why can't I go to sleep? And you get anxious and you start having that um, cortisol starts to build up. Your body, your blood pressure goes up. Your heart rate goes up. All of those things keep you from going to sleep. Then you have a bad night of sleep and then you have a bad day on Monday. This is part of the problem with Sunday night anxiety about Monday morning. It's not necessarily about work. It's that you haven't, you've changed your circadian rhythm to the point where your body's just not ready for sleep and you can't go to sleep. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to, when, as I'm listening to you say this, I'm, I'm internalizing it to my own routine. And so basically what you're saying is that our routine Monday th or Monday through Friday should look the same as Saturday and Sunday. Exactly. And it's okay to stay up late on the weekend. You just got to remember to get up at the same time every day. Like every piece of sleep advice is get up at the same time every day. That is why it's all about your circadian rhythm. It has a schedule. And when you disrupt that schedule, so the, the time that you sleep in in the morning, however much you delay that, that's how long you're delaying your rhythm in the evening. So if you sleep in two extra hours, you're, you're going to have to be two extra hours at night. So if you want to sleep in on the weekend, then you're just going to have to have a short night of sleep on Sunday night to get up the next day because that's just the way your, your cycle will work. Right. What are your thoughts on melatonin? Because I have a lot of people that take it. Do you, um, are you a fan of it? I know after a while, I, if I'm correct, I think what I've heard is after a while, your body will stop producing it as depending on how much you're taking and how regular you're taking it. Because when your body gets used to having that external source, it feels like, well, maybe I don't need to make as much. And then people then have trouble falling asleep on their own without it. Well, um, I'm not sure about the body stopping to produce it that I, I can't speak to that. But here's some facts about melatonin. It's a hormone produced by the 
the pineal gland. And it's um, not available in nature. It's not an herb, uh, vitamin or mineral. So when you take an over-the-counter supplement, you're taking a synthetic hormone. That's the first thing. The second thing is your body naturally only produces about 0.3 milligrams of melatonin a day. And the average over-the-counter supplement recommended dose is one to three milligrams. So that's a significant, that's three to 10 times the dose your body actually needs. Uh, melatonin is not a sleep inducer. Its job is to regulate your sleep-wake cycle. It doesn't make you sleepy. So if you are taking it, first of all, you should be taking it about two hours before bedtime, not right at bedtime, because it's not going to make you tired. It's, it's supposed to induce help. It's supposed to help relax your body so it's prepared for sleep. But it naturally starts production in your body about two hours before your regular bedtime. So that's another reason why you wanna have a regular sleep schedule because your melatonin is gonna start production at roughly the same time every day because of, um, because of your schedule, your circadian rhythm. Um, the other thing to know about uh, melatonin, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um, oh, the comment that you made about um, people, you know, they stop taking it and they don't feel like they, it's, they can do it anymore. Well, it's, it's not likely that their body's not producing it anymore. It's more likely that they've created a placebo effect with melatonin. That they, because they take it and it helps them, they think it's going to help them go to sleep. So it does make them go to sleep. And then when they stop taking it, they think I'm not going to be able to sleep without it. So then they have a hard time going to sleep. So it all goes back to that anxiety, like, oh, this is gonna help me. I don't need to worry because yeah. this will do the job. And it's the act of, of calming yourself down, which actually enables you to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like I said, so much, I, I mean, I'm learning a lot right now. So I feel like this is very helpful. And I know, um, and I'm a good sleeper. Like I don't usually have any problems. So I know if I'm finding a lot of value, uh, people that are struggling are going to find a ton of value. So tell us how can we find out more about you and your, um, your program for those people that are struggling and need that step-by-step -step action plan. How do we, how do we go about doing that? Yeah. Well, you can go to my website, Lana Walsh coaching.ca and um, I have my program information about my program on there as well as uh, my ebook um, if you want to buy that it's only $27 so it gives you like five-step process how to sleep better um, and then I'm available you can reach out to me by email it's just lana at lana walsh coaching.ca it's really simple Way to perfect <laughs> yeah. is there anything else that you'd like to share with us that's something that we for missed or forgot to touch on that could be helpful yeah actually wanted to talk about the time change oh my up. goodness yes that is the that is the big thing because the yeah. daylight savings is coming up so perfect oh thank you for reminding me <laughs> yeah so the time change so just like um when i was talking about sleeping in on the weekend what sl sleeping in does to you almost what the time change does to you which is like you traveled a time zone it's like giving you jet lag. So this 
advice will not only work for getting through the time change, it will also work if you ever are traveling um, time zones to the east. This, this is going east when you're losing time, which is what we're going to do here this weekend. So um, first of all, the biggest thing when you're dealing with a time change is you want to set your circadian rhythm, your, your sleep cycle, as close to the new time zone as possible in advance of, of the change. So when we're only traveling an hour, um, what you should do, the best way to get through this time change is on Thursday morning, you're going to wake up a half hour earlier. So let's go with my sleep schedule. I sleep from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. So on Thursday morning, I, Wednesday night, I'll go to bed at 11. Thursday morning, I'm going to get up at 6.30. Then Thursday night, I'm going to go to bed at 10.30. And Friday morning, I'm going to get up at 6. Friday night, I'm going to go to bed at 10. Saturday morning, I'm going to get up at 6. Saturday night, so now I'm on my right schedule, right? Because now I'm going to go to bed at 10 Saturday night. And then Sunday morning, after the time change, I'm going to get up at 7, the new time, which would be 6, the old time. So, right. you, see, so you just slowly decrease by half an hour the time you get up in the morning and in and increase by half an hour, like go earlier to bed half an hour. So two days in advance so that you're on the right sleep schedule on Saturday night so that you can wake up an hour earlier without it affecting how much time asleep you got. Perfect. So if you're traveling further distance, you would just add two more days on the front for every hour. So you'd start on, if you're traveling two hours, you'd start Tuesday morning. You'd half hour earlier, half hour earlier, half hour earlier. So that's, that's the best way to um, not disrupt your cycle. And, um, and it's easier than to get up earlier one day because then you'll be more ready to go to bed a half hour earlier that night than trying to go to bed a half hour earlier plus getting up a half hour earlier. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you, you reminded me because that was the, you know, when we were first talking about putting this podcast together, we're like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we can talk about sleep right before daylight savings so we can actually give people the tools to be successful through the time change. So I'm so thankful that you touched on that. So really it only should take, a, it's about a four day process from beginning to end, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense because most people are not doing that. They just jump right in. And that's why it almost feels like it takes them the entire week to, to feel good again yeah and so yeah and they and the other thing most people do is they just stay up too late on the weekends and sleep in and so it just really disrupts their cycle so if you're on that same day every day and you just give yourself that extra time to get up a little bit earlier every day then you'll be set and you won't have that problem perfect awesome Lana this is so helpful thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom with all of us and guys seriously take advantage of her program if you struggle with sleep I mean you said decades of insomnia cured so um that's that's definitely something to pay attention to um okay Lana so what I do at the end of every one of my episodes is we share a recipe so I'm going to ask you if there is a special recipe you'd like to share with our listeners today yeah I do um 
I actually just tried this poached salmon recipe here a few weeks ago and I love it. I mean, I love salmon, but I usually like smother it in butter. <laughs> so this is, I, and, but this recipe um, had so much flavor. I was really surprised. So yes, I'm happy to share this with you. So poached salmon, um, you need one to one and a half pounds of salmon fillets, uh, salt, half a cup of dry white wine, and half a cup of water or um, chicken broth. I use chicken broth in mine. Uh, a shallot peeled and sliced. Several sprigs of fresh dill or a sprinkle of just dried dill. Uh, a sprig of fresh parley, parsley. Um, freshly ground black pepper. And a few slices of fresh lemon to serve. So you just sprinkle the salmon with the salt and pepper. Um, you put the wine, water, dill, parsley, and shallots um, into a saute pan. Bring that to a simmer over medium heat. Then you put the salmon fillets in and cover the pan. And then you cook for five to 10 minutes, depending on how thick they are. And, uh, but make sure you do not overcook this. It's so good when it's nice and juicy. It's really great. And then you just um, use the lemon, and any extra pepper or salt that you need to uh, make it taste great. So yeah. I love it. And so simple and so easy because we're all looking for what are those weeknight meals that we can throw together in about 15, 20 minutes. Um, my family loves salmon as well. So this is absolutely something we're going to be trying. And um, yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really great talking to you. Yes. Oh, this has been a lot of fun. So guys, again, if you want more information about Lana or her program, please feel free. Uh, we'll be including her information in the show notes. Uh, but guys, thank you so much for, for hanging out with us today. We hope you find this information valuable and we'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Nourish, Eat, Repeat podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please rate, review, and share with others so we can reach and help more people. For more information about nutrition, how to work with a dietitian, or about any of our programs, visit our website at bodymetricspa.com. Or you can find us on socials. We're on Instagram at Bodymetrics Health or on Facebook at Bodymetrics Health and Wellness Services. The book, Nourish, Eat, Repeat, is available on our website and Amazon in both paperback and ebook versions. Once again, I'm Adrienne Delgado, and I'll see you next week.